Hitting 20 knots up, a second later 20 knots down, getting slammed forward, backward with 30, 40 knot horizontal gusts. It's just very turbulent air. Everything's flying in the cockpit. Controls are not enough to overcome some of the, uh, the air movements and just being mentally prepared to be on a, the ride of a bucking bronco, <laughs> essentially getting pulled up through the rotor. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States, and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you for joining us for another exciting soaring adventure. For a while now, you know we've been asking you to share your chats with a friend or a gliding buddy about a recent or interesting flight. Well, our friend Tom Cousins did just that, and recently he caught up with Zach Yamauchi, who just had a 1,039-kilometer flight in Mountain Wave in the beautiful Sierras. Now, Zach is going to take us along on this flight so we can see and feel what it's like to experience that. Stay tuned after Tom and Zach, though, because we do have another new segment from Sergio, the Soaring Master. But before we get things started, I do want to thank our newest Patreon pilot, Stephen Kelty. Thank you, Stephen. We appreciate your support. Now, if you want to show us some love here on the pod and help us, continue to bring you more great content just hit the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash soaring the sky and if you don't want to use patreon we do have some other options for you at our website soaring the if you're not able to help us out financially that's okay it would be very helpful if you subscribe to the pod and leave us a five-star review and tell us how much you like the podcast wings and wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They are also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Hi, this is Tom Cousins, and I'm a sailplane pilot and tow pilot. And I recently was interviewed by Chuck in episode 105, if you want to get a bit of my background. Today, we're having a very special uh, kind of a small chat with Zach Yamauchi, who just two days ago flew 1,039 kilometers in Mountain Wave in the Sierras. And we're going to get into all the details about that. Uh, I met Zach at a Sorfari in Lone Pine, California, in the, in the Owens Valley there in 2020. And uh, we all showed up for dinner and there was this young kid amongst all us old graybeards. And I said, oh, that must be Zach Yamauchi's son. And it turns out it was Zach Yamauchi. And he was out uh, in his glider an hour before anybody else, towing up and scratching in the in the foothills, just trying to make things work and working all the the, the very tough stuff. We were looking for we we're always looking for better lift, and we were just all spoiled. And Zach was out there uh, mining the little stuff and and learning a lot more than we were. So Zach is uh, very dedicated to soaring. He uh, bought a run out discus A and refinished it and got it in the air, and it's it's his uh, his keeper now. And he's here to talk about uh, all the preparations and basically what it took to uh, fly in mountain waves. So, Zach, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me again. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So, so Zach, tell us uh, what what is mountain flying what mountain wave flying like? It's uh, you know, give us kind of the rundown of that. Sure. So, uh, mountain wave flying, especially uh, um, in the Sierra Nevada mountains, is is some of the most spectacular soaring that can be had, in my opinion. Um, currently, the longest glider flight on record, Jim Payne did back uh, back in uh, the twenty fifteen. 2907 kilometers uh in the sierra nevada so i'm a far ways from the the longest possible flights but the flights that are done there i mean 2000 flights are 2000k flights are a a common common thing probably about once once a year on average happens there uh the speeds that people reach and the uh, pilots are able to reach in the mountain range wave are just uh mind-blowing it's i mean 200 kph plus average speeds are kind of the norm for those long flights um but uh with that spectacular scenery and uh and high altitudes incredibly fast and long flights come a lot of risks and definitely want to touch on those uh the risks involved of flying high cold and and fast um in the sierras but uh yeah um what questions you have for me tom well so the key thing then is uh you know Looking at your OLC trace, uh, the one thing that I kind of gathered from it was that was just a tip of the iceberg. And so I would like to sure like to hear about what it took to, to even start to think about this. There are all the preparations, first of all. And so what kind of conditions were you looking for? It seems like you have to hit the silver bullet to get the, the right conditions to actually fly it. Yeah, definitely. So this is a flight. Um, my goal for this flight was to do all three of my diamond badge requirements. So it's a 16, the first one's a 5,000 meter, 16,404 feet. I believe that's the conversion, um, climb from the lowest point in flight. So that's typically your toe release altitude. Um, a 300 kilometer out and return declared, and then a 500 kilometer multi-turn point do all of those in one flight. And to put a cherry on top of that, I was planning for a thousand K total. Um, that would be a thousand K OLC, not diplom uh, length, but, uh, nonetheless, uh, a, a long flight and, uh, looking at the airspace I had to work with, which is, uh, 2508 restricted area, 2508 down in the Southern Sierras. That's a block of airspace that Edwards air, air Edwards air force base, um, Lemoore in the central Valley. That's a Naval base. Um, and then, uh, China Lake, use for military aircraft training it's um typically it's i think entirely vfr above a flight level 180 up there which is um different from normal instrument um airways above uh above that altitude um and it's military controlled so um we do have to seek out special clearances from the controlling agencies to access that as glider pilots but Doing so uh, allows us to do these out, these flights that are um, slightly. I don't like to go crazy high altitude like some some pilots, but higher um, enough that you're you can be more established in the wave and have a little bit more clearance over the the mountains, which there's plenty of peaks there that are uh, over fourteen thousand feet. So I've been uh, eyeing conditions that would allow me to do that flight for quite some time. It's kind of been a probably the last two years since my last big wave flights um, to do something like this and. Uh, 
earlier this season, I took a drive out to Inyo Kern. Conditions were looking like like it was lining up. Everything was good. And then um, didn't ring my glider that night, and I'm glad I did. And that whole night it was gusting 40, uh, about 40 knots consistently gusting to 60, I think, at times, 50 or 60 on the ground. Oh, and gosh. so, yeah, you have to be really picky about what conditions you're going to fly in and, and even willing to make the drive and scrub it if everything's not exactly perfect. Um, and in this case, it's I was fortunate enough that the conditions kind of did turn out to be perfect. Maybe not quite as strong as forecast, but still strong enough to do my goals and also um, a lot more benign conditions on the ground, even than what we're most of the time looking for for waves. So takeoff and landing on the ground were essentially calm winds, which is quite a contrast to the, uh, I think I saw 70 plus knots up high in the flight levels uh, on Friday. So uh, yeah, fortunate to have wow. those conditions. Um, and then, uh, yeah, um, some of the preparation that went into this flight, um, in terms of, uh, flying these, uh, flying at these altitudes, um, essentially for this flight, I was targeting between, um, 19 and 21,000 feet. Um, like I said, to give me a little bit more clearance over the terrain and then keeping in the wave. Cause once you get dropped down, even, I mean, you could have rotor on those big mountains up to 15, 16,000 feet. So, um, having that buffer a couple thousand feet there, as well as allowing you to make jumps if there's transitions or, or breaks in the wave, having that extra altitude to glide through those is extremely helpful, especially when you're battling 70, 80 knot crosswinds, uh, it really takes a hit, uh, really puts a hit in your glide performance there. My gosh. So, so what do you think, how high do you think that that particular wave could have gone? You, you re restricted yours down to uh, below 24,000 know, at your max. Yep. Um, could it have, do, do you have an idea how much higher that wave could have gone? Yeah. Looking at the sky site forecast, it was showing up in the low thirties. Um, I think the record out of Inyo current is in the fifties, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. but uh, yes. yeah, just depending on the day, it, it, it can typically go much higher than, than I like to fly. For me, it's not so much about exploring the high altitude um, stuff, more about doing the distance and having a little bit extra comfort in that distance is kind of ironically being more comfortable being up high where it's colder, but uh, you don't want to drop in low below those mountains because the rotor there is, is incredibly violent. Mm -hmm. So tell me about preparation, say, of the, of the glider. What did you need to do to make the glider ready? Yeah, so... Uh, Flying these flights, obviously, um, once you're off tow and climbing up through uh, um, through into the into the lower flight levels, it's extremely cold. I think freezing level for that day was probably like twelve thousand feet or something, and, and spent the whole day above that. Yeah, being up there, it's obviously extremely cold, um, very low oxygen environment. So making sure that you have a proven out oxygen system and one that's reliable, um, and then you have redundancy. So I fly with an extra oxygen bottle as well. In addition to that, yeah, I have heated shoes or heated boots are a must. And then also having the ability to have a heat, uh, I have a heated vest. I didn't actually turn it on that flight. I was warm enough. Um, but should things get cold, um, having that ability for a little bit of extra heat, especially when you're sitting still for that flight was seven hours. So not much movement yeah. for, for all that time. Additionally for that, uh, canopy icing is a, is, um, a, almost a guarantee above, um, above the freezing levels. So um, I was experiencing it a lot above um, 19,000 feet, pretty much any time above 19,000 feet, I was getting a little frost on the canopy. And then up uh, when I went to the highest point to, to get my diamond altitude uh, diamond altitude badge, uh, whole cockpit, a whole canopy was completely frozen over, except for um, about a third of it 
a third to half of it, which I had covered with a um, second pane of acrylic doubled up in size. So essentially you have a, a double line, a double line window, um, similar to like ski goggles or even the house, um, house windows that you have the double pane provides extra insulation and then prevents frost from or frost or condensation from building up inside of it. So without that, I'd be completely IFR inside of my own cockpit. Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems, and now introducing the Aerox Pro 2 Plus flight bag portable oxygen system. Small, lightweight, and simple to use, the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. So remember, our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Oh yeah, and in addition to that, of, of knowing, understanding the risks of flying wave of quite a few things. First, even starting on the ground, like I talked about, is extremely, uh, extremely powerful ground winds on both takeoff and landing. Even when you're rigging, you could be there dead calm and the rotor sweeps through and you got your gliders wings in, in place and maybe not pinned or something and you get a 40 knot gust coming through out of nowhere uh, there goes your glider so understanding that that's a very real possibility and very unpredictable wow. yeah and then oxygen deprivation is a real thing colds a real thing hypoxia is definitely a thing dehydration um the the lack of moisture up there um, the list goes on and on of of how hazardous and how unforgiving mountain wave um, is uh, and I think one of the, the keys for anybody um, interested in this is, is completely fully understanding all the risks associated with this type of flying, being real with yourself of your risk tolerance, um, what you're willing to accept and going from there um, and, and evaluating if this is truly something for you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it is, it's much more risky than just uh, thermaling down you know, below 18,000 feet and just uh, having a good old time in the Sierras. This is something that is you have to take very seriously. Many people have uh, died of have hypoxia, things like that, and other problems. And so, yeah, it's, this is not something you just casually go and do for sure. Yeah, this is a mountain wave. Well, wave flying in general is, uh, is on the higher end of the risk curve of soaring. And then when you add flying in one of the highest mountain ranges that, uh, on the world to fly in. The, the risk just compounds there. So uh, truly understanding uh, what you're getting yourself into as well as learning lessons from, from past pilots who have paid hefty prices for, for flying in these conditions. Yeah. But, but the, uh, the main thing is, you know, why do it then? It's, and you know, why do it? <laughs> Zach, why do you do it? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the exploration aspect of um, exploring the wave, really getting to to be super intimate with the atmosphere, um, interacting with it, experience the raw power of it. The views from 20,000 feet over the snow-capped Sierras are just something that you, see, you can see it out of in pictures. You could look out the side of an airline, airliner window flying in that area, but it's just completely different, breathtaking experience seeing it with your own eyes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah as well as uh, fulfilling a personal challenge of mine um, or a personal goal of mine. Um, that's also part of the motivation as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what about the route? You know, there's a, the one thing that uh, you, you know, you, you chose your, your turn points, your start and end points, and also the, the basic route and, and how you were going to achieve that thousand uh, K what, uh, what sort of planning were you doing there? Yeah, sure. So 2508, that block of restricted airspace that we're flying in, uh, has a, um, upper, uh, 
the upper boundary of it. It's about 170 kilometers north of Inyokern, where we were taking off of. Um, and so 170 times six, which is how many legs you can get with an OLC flight, gets you right around 1,000K. And uh, so I picked two turn, made two turn points, one just to the uh, west of the airport, about five miles, centered right in the wave band, and then a northerly turn point um, up north, still also centered in this forecast wave band, um, just south, like about a mile south of that boundary, half mile south of that boundary. Um, and my plan that day was to do a six legs between those two, kind of just uh, <laughs> what we call a yo-yo, back and forth on that on that line. Um, and then targeting, yeah, staying between, uh, hopefully getting up higher uh, above 18,000 early in the flight and then being pretty comfortable uh, in that wave. Um, starting out uh, mm-hmm. for that flight, the tow, one of the other uh, hazards with a uh, flying mountain wave is is you have to go, there's no way around it. You have to get through the rotor to get into the laminar flow. And so getting through the rotors oftentimes, I'm pretty much always going to be on tow. Sometimes you'll get off tow low and thermal, essentially rotor thermal climb up through the rotor um, off tow in before punching into the wave. Um, in this case, uh, and in this, in the, on this tow, as well as another tow in the past, just some of the most violent experiences in the cockpit of a glider where um, the Vario's hitting 20 knots up a second later, 20 knots down, getting slammed oh. forward, backward with 30, 40 knot horizontal gusts. It's just very turbulent air. Everything's flying in the cockpit. Controls are not enough to overcome some of the, uh, the air movements and just being mentally prepared to be on a, the ride of a bucking Bronco, <laughs> essentially getting pulled up through the rotor and also understanding that, yeah, it's not just your life at stake here. It's a tow pilot's life as well. And fortunately having, having, willing tow pilots, um, in this case, Dan Klein out of Inyokern, um, to, to provide that tow for me, um, knowing that we kind of have a mutual trust there of that he has my life and I have, I I'm looking out for his life. And so, and this tow in particular, the wave got so violent. Um, there's so much slack rope in the tow, tow line, um, probably close to a hundred feet or half, half the, half the tow rope where the tow rope was starting to loop back behind my wing. Um, uh, essentially is overflying the slack in the l- rope and oh. um just like we do for uh for rope breaks when you're you're training for that and, and understanding what to do in a rope break that decision isn't made when the rope breaks that decision is made when when you're on the ground right um you know you're gonna turn you're gonna you're gonna land straight ahead if you ever have a rope break below 200 feet no questions asked that decision's made before you take off and so when when it happens or if it happens all you're doing is executing on a plan you already have mm-hmm. so it's same case with this this toe is anytime when there's slack rope that's unrecoverable for me that's anytime the the, the line the toe rope gets uh, essentially parallel with my wing um in this case it, it went even slightly slightly beyond that um uh, before i had time to get to the release but not much um i ended up releasing a couple of times uh, i was able in in more minor um slack ropes before that uh, on this toe was able to recover but uh at that point, it's pretty much unrecoverable or at least not recoverable in a safe fashion behind the tow plane and making sure that, yeah, you don't at a minimum break the rope, but uh, other things would put the tow plane in a bad attitude, put yourself in a bad attitude, break tow releases, things like that. And so, yeah, on this tow in particular, about 6,500, um, that's uh, that airport's 2,400. So yeah, 4,000 feet off the ground, um, still in the rotor. Yeah, I made the decision to release. Fortunately, we we're on the upside of the rotor. So I was able to do a couple turns and then punch into the wave. But knowing that uh, that's to be expected when you're when you're flying in these conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. So then uh, when you so you you got into the wave and started climbing and then, um, you know, basically, 
what was it like then on those on the yo-yo legs? Uh, you know, what what sort of things were you looking for when you were you know uh, going northbound and southbound to basically what was you know what was what were you looking for to stay in the wave or or what did you want to that whole thing? What was your philosophy in basically making the distance between the uh, the turn points? Yeah. So for those of you who haven't flown wave, um, I'm I'm kind of been harping on all the, the crazy stuff that can happen in it. But once you're established in wave, it's one of the most magical experiences because mine's well be on your couch at home in your living room because the wave is perfectly laminar. The glider will fly hands off because there's zero there's pretty much zero turbulence in the upper atmosphere higher up in the atmosphere and undisturbed air. You're at a pretty severe crab angle with 60, 70 knot crosswinds that you're dealing with. But other than that, getting the crab angle right and then pointing um, crosswind essentially the glider, the glider is pretty, uh, pretty comfortable to fly in at that point, minus the cold dealing with that. But uh, as if you're bundled up, it's not terrible. Once I was established in the wave, yeah, the first first leg of that was a little bit slow going, actually a lot slow going, a lot more than I was expected. The wave at that point, which was, um, which I had expected looking at the forecast would be uh, a little bit weaker for that first half of the first leg, essentially. Um, if you know the geography there from Inyo Kern up to Mount Whitney, about halfway between my uh, start and end turn points um, or uh, start and finish turn points of each leg. Uh, that part, part was slow going. The mountains are lower there. So uh, not as consistent wave there. So um, I was trying to kind of scratch as high, as much altitude as I could um, at those, at those uh, strong points before con- jumping onto the next essentially prominent peak. And I got a couple bumps there. Um, however, when I did get up to Mount Whitney, so Mount Whitney's highest mountain in the U.S., 14, I want to say 14,500 feet approximately. That's typically where the best wave starts. Uh, I think it's colloquial known, colloquially known as the uh, Whit- Mount Whitney Superhighway. So uh, that's where on good days you're seeing netto 15, even netto 20 knots up. Um, consistently. Um, however, got there a little wow. bit lower than I wanted to be, probably about ridge height. Um, rotor can be, is definitely found below ridge height, sometimes up above it. Um, so it was, I was in for a little bit of rotor, rotor working there, spent about 10 minutes or so climbing in the rotor. It's, it's being in a, being in a, the most violent thermal you could imagine and then multiply it by two, essentially, uh, where <laughs> half, half, the, half your turn's going up at 30 knots and the other half's going down at 15 knots or 20 knots. And, and your airspeed indicator is moving just as fast as your variometer with horizontal gusts. Oh, um, so it's not comfortable, but, uh, working that rotor a little bit there was enough gain enough altitude and then be able to punch back in the wave. And from there, that's where the really strong wave picked up. So it was like pull the stick back to uh, um, min sink and then be uh, in complete laminar, um, laminar lift, um, just going up 800 to a thousand feet a minute, 1200 feet per minute, even there of just essentially hovering in one place on the ground. Cause the headwinds are so strong pointing into the wind and just going vertically up, um, screamingly fast for a, a glider and then once i was established there um getting about to twenty thousand feet or so working my way up north to my to the end of my first leg once i got up there turning back around and essentially doing the same thing and repeat five more times going back down south on that leg it definitely conditions were definitely improving and i was able to also tank up on altitude around mount whitney uh i think at that point around twenty three thousand five hundred feet to get my diamond altitude goal done and then head south back towards Inyo Kern, turn that turn point, climb a little bit there and then uh, head back north. Most of the time cruising between 
100, 110 knots indicated, which depending on the, the headwind component of the crosswind at that point, it's to 120 to 150 knots ground speed is what I'm saying in those fast runs. And then occasionally when you want to climb, you don't really thermal and wave, you more so just pull back the stick and, and your sink rate decreases. Um, the, the vertical, um, the vertical movement of their mass is such that you just end up going up when your sink rate um, decreases. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains. They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, go to soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. Yes, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. But and yet you're flying in kind of a crab, right? They're, you're not actually, you know, you're you're not flying. I mean, the, the, your bearing is one thing. Your actual track is quite a bit different. You're because you're because your nose is into the wind. To, you know, t- what thirty degrees or so. But so you're kind of looking up yeah, the, the side to where you're really going. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's something to get used to when you're you're moving along the ground, like uh, at a forty degree angle or so. And it's something to be very cognizant of because the second you um, you you lapse on the ground and start pointing your nose to your ground track, essentially to where you want to go, you immediately drift downwind. And uh, because yeah, you're dealing with seventy knot crosswind or so, that downwind drift happens super quickly. And then to recover to get back on track of um, the direction you are heading, uh, that it, it, you're, you're battling a severe headwind to do so. So it takes much, much longer to go um, back upwind to track back upwind than it does to track downwind. Yeah. That boy, that makes sense. Wow. So uh, um, any, any kind of uh, during those legs, was there any particular thing that uh, surprised you? Other, I don't know what else you can be surprised by. It's, <laughs> but was anything of note uh, in any of those particular legs that was, that was different than the rest? Sure. One of the many other hazards of flying waves, uh, dealing with moisture um, in the atmosphere. Um, the day I chose to fly in a lot of, and, and the days I've been eyeing flying wave, it's always days that are near to blue or um, completely blue days. Yeah. Fortunately, in the in the 2020s here, we have access to SkySight, which um, when you overlay that forecast on your flight computer, typically you get a pretty good sense of at least where to look for the wave without the need for having binoculars or markers. And having blue wave, then you have much less risk of getting trapped either above a layer or getting pushed into a, a lenticular cloud, which are immediate way to go IMC, ice over. Um, many, there's quite a few pilots ending up in clouds and wave and, and not having bad outcomes there. So I intentionally avoid wow. flying with moisture. In the last leg, there was a little bit of moisture developing, but fortunately it was much higher than I was flying, um, probably closer to two eight zero or three zero zero in terms of flight levels up there higher but something i was happy to not have to deal with during that flight wow so so there you've, you've done it you've got your thousand k you're you're coming back on their last leg and you want to you want to get down what was it like to descend from there to to land yeah so um I was about four fifteen or so if i if i remember correctly sunset that night was uh 4 50 or so in inyo kern so sun was definitely low on the horizon at that point it kind of felt spooky the sunsets in the winter just feels a lot a lot different a lot uh yeah a lot more different than it does in the sun, summer so uh 
those are the conditions I was landing in. Um, the sun was also behind some clouds out further in the distance, 50 miles or so out to the west. And so it was pretty, um, not, not too dark, but definitely uh, felt kind of gloomy coming down. And then heading back to the airport and then just kind of spiraling down, full spoilers out. And uh, obviously making sure your gear works up high. I always check that before I start descending. So if, if anything's, uh, you're having problems with anything, you're not troubleshooting uh, your gear or spoilers in the traffic pattern while battling rotor as well. Um, yeah. As expected, that rotor normally sets up from the base of the foothills over in Yokern to the west of Yokern over directly overhead the airport. And so, again, yeah, my last my last trip through the rotor was on the way down. It's time to tighten the belts up uh, and then uh, kind of make sure everything in the cockpit's secure uh, and then just do a kind of slow controlled spiral down, uh, keeping the airspeed up to an extent so that you're not at risk of stalling your spinning um, in the in the turbulence. Also keeping it low enough that your uh, load factors don't get crazy high when you hit that hit that turbulence. So uh, yeah, just kind of doing circles, getting down, um, kind of gritting my teeth as I come through the rotor the last time. And then fortunately on this day, uh, the rotor subsided a, a little bit, maybe 500 or 1,000 feet of a pattern altitude and then coming back in the land. Uh, we're very, very lucky on this flight to have almost dead calm ground winds when we landed. I think they were calm for most of the day. Uh, you need to fully expect, anticipate, and prepare for is, is landing in, in 30, even 40 knot sustained winds uh, when the rotor hits down at the airport or wherever you end up landing. And so, yeah, we're, we're lucky on this day to not really have that to deal with. But uh, in the past, yeah, landing in 30 knots is really not fun. And something you might even get, you might get trapped in your glider, of just kind of steering it on the runway, keeping it pointed in the wind in the event that, that those winds are consistent and persistent. And then uh, having someone come essentially rescue your vehicle, your tow gear, all that packed up and, and getting the glider someplace where it's secure, where the wind could die down. Wow. Amazing. So yeah, that was good. So all in all, it was kind of like almost like the dream flight in that regard, at least it, it, you know, you, you weren't, uh, you, you weren't struggling on the ground and prep and you, and you also had a, a very peaceful D rig afterwards. So that's, uh, that's really good. Yeah, most certainly. Yeah. The flight, the flight was, uh, the flight, I'm, I'm happy to accomplish all my goals on that flight. Um, I'd say it was, a, the conditions were a bit more, a, a bit more difficult than forecast, but not, um, not crazy difficult. It was just uh, a couple more transitions between um, areas of good, uh, strong lift and less consistent lift um, than I was expecting. Um, but overall, yeah, it was a, a mostly pleasurable experience. Uh, very happy to have uh, uh, ground handling in this on this day not be a factor. Yeah, that's great. Well, overall, just a tremendous success. And uh, man, you sh I hate to use a pun, but you really made waves by that flight. That's for sure. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, that was fantastic. You, uh, I mean, real props to you. You are you're making a name for yourself, especially among us uh, us guys in the uh, Southern Sierras. That's for sure. <laughs> well, good. Well, thank uh, you very much. Stepped over you, but uh, I was just going to say, hopefully, making a name for myself in a good way, not a bad way. <laughs> Absolutely, Zach. There's no question about that. Uh, it's just from a personal standpoint, the, the thing that inspires me about you is your constant uh, desire to learn and to improve and to, to be better at what you're doing. Uh, no conditions are, are, are poor enough, too poor for you. You'll just go up and fly it. And uh, that uh, teaches guys like me to get out there and, and tow up and fly anyhow. So, uh, you know, power to you. 
you don't learn much when you're flying easy conditions. It's the difficult conditions where so much learning and improving goes on. And so not being afraid of those conditions is, is the most critical thing you can do to, to improve your soaring, in my opinion, is flying, flying those days that you wouldn't normally want to fly from fun ass fun perspective, but something where you could really learn um, and take away lessons, especially in those weekdays. Absolutely. Yeah. That's like I say, that's real inspiration for us to just get out there and fly even when it, uh, it isn't just superstar kind of conditions. Well, Zach, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, you know, I know you're still on a high from that uh, tremendous flight. And I, I thank you for giving me the time to, uh, to get a complete rundown. This has been super exciting to to hear about it and uh, look forward to uh, your continued uh, adventures. Yeah, likewise. And thanks for uh, t- taking the time. I'm glad I could uh, share the story with a little bit wider audience than just uh, local local California folks. Absolutely. The world is hearing your story now. All right. Take care. All right. Take care, Zach. Great uh, thermals to you. And we'll catch you on the, on the, on the grid somewhere. Perfect. Okay. Bye-bye now. Just Soaring, the makers of the Glider Sim Pro Sailplane Simulator Cockpit, would like to congratulate German pilot Ben Fest for his recent victory in the first ever FAI-sanctioned aviation esports event in history, the Sailplane World Grand Prix, which Ben won after several days of exciting competition against some of the top Condor soaring pilots from around the world. If you are looking for a best-in-class dedicated sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor or Microsoft Flight Sim, look no further than the Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. Check them out at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. Hi everyone, Sergio, the Soaring Master here. In this segment, we are going to talk about flaps and how they work in sailplanes. Flaps are lift devices, so the name already states how they work. They change the amount of lift a wing generates. Positive flaps at lower speeds are straightforward. Deploying flaps will increase the amount of lift your wing generates in comparison with the same unflapped wing at the same speed. At approach speeds, this provides a higher margin from stall and it also helps glide slope control. More lift will generate more drag, and positive flap settings generate more lift at the expense of glide ratio, thus helping the glide slope control. Some early fiberglass sailplanes did not have spoilers, and they landed only by deploying flaps. Now that positive flaps functioning is clear, Let's talk about the mystical negative flap settings. Lift varies proportionally to lift coefficient, but at the square of speed. So in higher speeds, an unflapped wing generates much more lift than needed. This extra lift generates extra drag, and hence the rationality behind negative flaps, they reduce the lift generated by the wing. Thus, you generate less drag at the same speed in comparison with the same unflapped wing at that speed. The reduction of lift coefficient won't affect the overall lift, since the higher speed will offset lift generation. Summing up, you get what you want, fly faster, but you'll pay less for it with a better L over D in comparison with an unflapped wing at the same speed. 
Another reason why negative flaps have been adopted in sailplanes is that modern laminar airfoils have been designed to keep the laminar boundary layer stable within a certain range of angle of attack. And by using negative flaps and lowering the wing's lift coefficient, you lower its angle of attack, maintaining it within this best range I mentioned at higher speeds. From the pilot's perspective, flying with flaps is almost like changing gears in a sports car. And the response is immediate. You feel the sailplane accelerating as you change the flap setting to a negative one. Due to mechanical linkage, Trim settings are automatically adjusted with each flap setting, so the sailplane is always well trimmed and the stick barely moves as you change gears, as you change the flap settings. The flap lever ends up being much like a throttle and you get so used to it that once you go back to unflapped sailplanes, your left hand will keep on forever changing an imaginary flap lever. And that's how flaps work in sailplanes. Flying flap sailplanes is awesome. You should try it. I see you in the next episode. For more tips and advice, follow me on Instagram at SurreyMaster or check my website, SurreyMaster.com. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.